St. Catherine of Siena, God's Feminine Emissary to the World. The 14th century Christian saint, Catherine of Siena, was a highly influential, compassionate, and in many ways, enigmatic figure. Today she is best known for her involvement with the papacy during its stay at Avignon and later back at Rome. Because of her greatly influential role at this time, she is justly considered not only one of the most powerful and extraordinary figures of the age, but of any age before or since. However, it is also as a mystic that Catherine has gained notoriety. She led a truly remarkable and intriguing inner life, fostered in the main by her extremely intimate relationship with her Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Catarina Benicasa, her family name meant well-housed, was born on March 25, 1347, the 23rd and final child of Giacomo and Lapa Benicasa. Giacomo was a successful craftsman, a dyer, and by nature a very gentle and religious man. Lapa was a very energetic and oftentimes nagging woman, and yet possessed an honest, forthright, and simple character. The couple took good care of their children, providing adequate material conditions for their growth as well as a stable family situation. From the beginning, Catherine seemed to have a charming influence on those around her. As biographer Francis Keyes states, Everyone found her so pleasing and so sensible in the things she said that her mother had difficulty in keeping her at home, because all the friends and neighbors used to carry her off to their own homes so that they could enjoy her wise little sayings and the comfort of her delightful childish gaiety. From this attractive picture, which we owe to Catherine's first biographer, Raymond of Capua, it would seem that her ability to charm began with her infancy, and there is nothing to indicate that it lessened to the very day of her death. However, although both as a girl and as a woman, her very being mingled with that of her fellow creatures, and that she was always a source of comfort and delight to them, Catherine, above all, loved solitude. That is, she sought to be apart from her fellow man in order to be alone with her Savior. This desire remained with Catherine throughout her life, despite the fact that due to her innate compassion and her obedience to the commands of Christ, she was, as we shall see, greatly involved in the activities of the world. This love for solitude began in Catherine at about the age of seven, following the experience of a vision. As described by Keyes, walking down the steep hill by St. Dominic's church, hand in hand with her brother Stefano, she had seen a celestial vision The sky had suddenly opened to disclose the Son of God seated on a throne and surrounded by saints, and the Savior had blessed her by making the sign of the cross. 
Prior to this time, Catherine had been a very religious girl, saying her prayers frequently and with devotion from the earliest age. And yet, with this experience, she became the inner mystic life of divine love and lived this life intensely. Raymond of Capua illustrates the transformation that occurred to Catherine at this time. From that moment it became clear from Catherine's virtues, the gravity of her behavior, and her extraordinary wisdom that under her girlish appearance there was hidden a fully formed woman. Her actions, indeed, had nothing childish, nothing girlish about them, but showed all the signs of a most venerable maturity. From now onwards the fire of divine love burned within her, enlightening her mind, kindling her will, strengthening her power of thought, and enabling her external acts to conform to the laws of God. From this point on, Catherine began to seek out places of quiet within her house where she could express this fire of love. She longed to imitate the lives of the Holy Fathers of Egypt and live as a hermit. Catherine's acquaintance with the lives of the saints furthermore caused her, even at that age, to lead a remarkably more ascetic existence. Keyes states that this knowledge was the cause of certain innovations in the young girl's life which filled all who witnessed it with amazement. She would seek out hidden places and scourge her young body in secret with a special rope. She gave up all childless games and devoted her time to prayer and meditation instead. Unlike most children, she became increasingly silent and took less and less food to sustain her. And to complete her total dedication to Christ alone, Catherine, at the age of seven, took a perpetual vow of virginity. Her biographer, Josephson, said that Catherine promised herself to Jesus before an image of Our Lady. Most blessed and holy virgin, it is said that she prayed, look not upon my weakness, but grant me the grace that I may have for my bridegroom, him whom I love with all my soul, thy most holy Son, our only Lord, Jesus Christ. I promise him and thee that never will I have any other bridegroom. So determined was Catherine to keep her vow that upon being faced later on with a definite courtship at the instigation of her mother, she cut off all her hair. She resolutely declared to her parents, I therefore advise you to break off all arrangements about my marriage, for in that matter I do not intend to do your will, inasmuch as one must obey God rather than man. I have a bridegroom so rich and so mighty that he can give me all that I need and who will never let me want for anything. Giacomo Lapa could hardly help but submit to this inspired display of obstinacy, and eventually let Catherine have her way. Finally, they even submitted to Catherine's wish to join the Third Order of St. Dominic, the Dominican Sisters of Penance, or the Mantelate, the Wearers of Cloaks, at the age of 16. 
This order was not a cloistered one, but rather made up of lay women living the rule of St. Dominic in their own homes. Following her entrance into the order, Catherine underwent a three-year period of seclusion. Keyes describes, For three long years she left her cell-like room only to go to church, and she broke her self-imposed rule of silence only to confess or to meet some emergency. She ate alone and sparingly of bread and vegetables and drank only water. She trained herself to do with very little sleep in order that she might have more time for meditation and for her devotions. All the while she became closer and closer to the realization of her ideal, a life of union with Christ. Catherine's ideal was finally attained when, at the age of 19, and concluding her period of seclusion, she underwent a so-called mystic marriage with Christ. This experience was what Evelyn Underhill has called an active imaginary vision, one in which the self seems to itself to act, not merely to look on, and which, in its outward form, was connected with inward results, and an automatic expression of intense, subliminal activity, the outward and visible sign of the self's movement towards new levels of consciousness. The vision then fulfilled the highest hopes and dreams of Catherine. The Lord said to her, I will this day celebrate solemnly with thee the feast of the betrothal of thy soul, and even as I promised, I will espouse thee to myself in faith. Then, says her legend, Whilst the Lord was yet speaking, there appeared his mother, John, Paul, Dominic, and the prophet David. And while he played with most sweet melody, the Virgin Mother of God took the right hand of Catherine with her most sacred hand and besought the Son to deign to espouse her to himself in faith. To which, graciously consenting, he drew out a ring of gold, and placing this ring upon Catherine's right hand, he said, Lo, I espouse thee to myself. Thou wilt preserve this ever without stain. Henceforth, my daughter, do manfully and without hesitation those things which by the ordering of my providence will be put into thy hands. For being now armed with the fortitude of the faith, thou wilt happily overcome all the adversaries of your life. The ring she received in her vision, so Catherine declared, remained ever on her finger, yet was only visible to herself. This experience proved and provided the turning point in Catherine's life. The new level of consciousness which she had now reached made her realize that she must be out in the world of action. In response to her divine command, she emerged from her seclusion, armed with the fortitude of the faith, and entered into the normal everyday activities and duties of a respectable young woman of Siena. 
Thus, Catherine at first reaccustomed herself to interaction with people by mingling with her family, resuming her household chores, and taking on interest in family affairs. She then began working as a nurse in the local hospital. Along with this, she mingled with the intelligentsia of the day, an activity which, to say the least, was more unusual for a young woman of the 14th century. And yet, it was by so doing that she acquired much of the wisdom and worldly knowledge which would be so useful for her later on. Keyes observed that she gathered together poets, artists, politicians, men of law and men of religion, all of whom deepened her culture and at the same time enlarged her field of action. She collected information from all her friends, information which she utilized in her public life. It of course was not surprising that Catherine gathered people around her, even to the extent of acquiring disciples who struggled to emulate her naturally happy, spiritual way of life. Catherine, as was mentioned, had a natural charm about her. Added to this, her deep spiritual experience gave her a somewhat irresistible quality of attraction for those around her. She was strong as steel, and her boundless energy, her almost incredible endurance, were evident to all. She gave an impression of physical as well as spiritual and mental force. However, despite her popularity, Catherine soon became the subject of ill-founded rumors. Due to her many contacts with men, she was unjustly accused of leading an impure life. Added to this were criticisms of her abstinence, which she had continued to a degree from her childhood days. And above all, there was criticism and general misunderstanding of her at times enigmatic and mystical ways. For example, she was often seen entering into a trance after reception of the Eucharist, and would often utter the cryptic statement, I have seen the hidden things of God. Finally, even the Pope, Gregory XI, got wind of the rumors and he therefore summoned Catherine to appear before the Dominican chapter held in Florence, Italy in 1374. Catherine appeared before the 500-strong governing body and was shortly acquitted of all charges. Thereafter, Catherine was to remain in the best of graces with Gregory and with the papacy in general. Catherine then proceeded back to Siena, her home in Italy, only to find the city stricken by the plague. Moved by compassion, at once Catherine began to aid the victims of the disease, allowing herself little food or sleep in the process. The most striking aspect of this unrelenting activity, however, was the miraculous way in which Catherine could treat many of her patients. She would cure them with the power of God and the force of her will. Typical among such miracles worked by Catherine was the case of one of her dear friends who was seemingly fatally stricken by the plague. Keyes describes, She hastened to see him, fired by charity, and, as though angry with the plague herself, and even before she reached him, she started shouting from a distance, Get up, Messer Matteo, get up! This is no time for lying in a soft bed. 
At the words of this command, the fever and the swelling and the groin and all the pain immediately disappeared, and Matteo felt as well as if he had never been ill at all. Nature had obeyed God through the mouth of the Virgin. Catherine next began her period of political and church-related activities. Her involvement with political powers and with the church, particularly the papacy, had up to this point been conducted solely through correspondence. For example, she had already rather brazenly advised the Pope in various matters and had urged him to conduct himself in a way worthy of his office. Now, however, she finally gets actively involved with church politics. Thus, she is invited to Pizza, largely to help in order to prevent the city from joining the League of Tuscan Cities which had united against the Pope. She was, in the main, successful, employing the services of freelance soldier Sir John Hawkwood to defend Pisa, thus assuaging the government from making any rash moves against the papacy. While staying at Pisa, Catherine underwent one of her most profoundly mystical experiences, she received the stigmata, the markings on the body of the wounds of Christ. It occurred at the altar rail after reception of communion. She had just gone into her usual trance-like state when, as Catherine's spiritual advisor, Fra Raimundo, relates, the following happened. To our surprise, we saw her little body, which had been lying prostrate, gradually rise up until it was upright on its knees. Her arms and hands stretched themselves out, and light beamed from her face. She remained in this position for a long time, perfectly stiff, with her eyes closed, and then we saw her suddenly fall, as though mortally wounded. A little later, her soul recovered its senses. Catherine later said of this experience the following, I saw the Lord fixed to the cross coming towards me in a great light, and such was the impulse of my soul to go and meet its creator that it forced the body to rise up. Then, from the scars of his most sacred wounds, I saw five rays of blood coming towards me, to my hands, my feet, and my heart. Realizing what was to happen, I exclaimed, O oh Lord God, I beg you, do not let these scars show on the outside of my body. Her wish was fulfilled. The scars could not be seen. Catherine, however, felt the intense pain in these areas for the remainder of her life. Catherine's political activity continued when, in 1376, she attempted to reconcile Florence, the chief city in rebellion against the Church's authority, with the Pope. Thus, she offered herself to, as representative for Florence in order to help settle the dispute, and proceeded to make her momentous trip to Avignon to see Pope Gregory. While there, she did her best to evoke peace. As Keyes put it, she had the courage to remind His Holiness that crimes had been committed against the Florentines no less than against the Papal State, and that just, just grievances were not all on one side. 
She next proceeded to dwell on the Florentines' desire for reconciliation and the lengths to which they were now willing to go in order to do their share in bringing this about. And, as she did so, Gregory was persuaded that at least a truce, if not lasting peace, might well be in sight. Above all, however, particularly during and since Catherine's negotiating power had been suddenly undermined by a power change in Florence, she urged that Gregory return the papacy to Rome. She ultimately saw this as the only lasting solution to the problem. The Pope concedes and in 1376 returns to Rome. Egino Giordani outlines the significance of the occasion. The Pope set out from Marseille to embark for Rome on September 13. That day marked the end of the exile at Avignon, which had lasted for 70 years. It marked one of the most important events of history, freighted with consequence, an event which for centuries has been discussed by students of history and politics, has been the subject of writers and artists. The hand of a simple virgin had removed barriers that seemed immovable, had done what neither writers nor diplomats nor rulers had been able to do. Following the actual return of the papacy on January 17, 1377, Catherine's influence had a final effect. A peace treaty was at last signed between Florence and Rome. Keyes stated that after the return of the Pope to Rome, the pacification of Florence was her greatest triumph. She had labored for peace without counting danger and fatigue, and now she had completed her task. Catherine eventually returns to Siena, and in 1378 begins the dictation of her remarkable book, The Dialogue. It was recorded by three of her disciples while Catherine was in a trance-like state. Although dealing at times with the sublime heights of mystical attainment, using much symbology, the book is for the most part a practical document, outlining directives for the living of a good Christian life, albeit in a typically Catholic mode and framework. As translated, translator Algar Thorold put it, the composition of the Sienese daughter's uh, will, purified and sublimated by prayer, imposed itself on popes and princes in an almost unique specimen of what may be called ecclesiastical mysticism for its special value lies in the fact that from first to last it is nothing more than a mystical exposition of the creeds taught to every child in the Catholic poor schools. With regards to style, the work is mostly written in a strong Catholic tone and terminology, 
simple, and direct. At times, there are unusually lofty passages, especially considering the simple background of the author. Algar states that passages occur frequently of lofty eloquence, and also of such literary perfection that this book is held by critics to be one of the classics of the age and land which produced Boccaccio and Petrarch. The Great Schism was the next church event to occupy Catherine's mind. She was vehement in her denunciation of the cardinal's move to elect another pope. As soon as she heard the rumors, Catherine wrote a series of blistering letters to the cardinals. O oh, men, not men, but rather demons visible, how does the inordinate love that you have set upon the dunghill of your bodies and on the delights and states of the world blind you, so that when the vicar of Christ, he whom you elected by canonical election, wishes to correct your lives, you now spread poison and say he is not true Pope. Pope Urban then seeks the help of Catherine and summons her to Rome. There, she proceeds to freely dispense much helpful advice and helps keep Urban's moral character intact and sends out a barrage of letters desperately trying to rectify the split in her church. The translator of her letters, V.D. Scudder, states, From this time, Catherine devotes her whole powers to the cause of Urban. She is his trusted advisor and seeks earnestly to curb his impatient temper on the one hand and to keep the sovereigns of Europe faithful to him on the other. She writes on his behalf to the kings of France and Hungary, to Queen Giovanna of Naples, to the magistrates of Italian cities, to the Italian cardinals who have joined the schism, and to others. Although at one point Catherine succeeded in quieting a revolt of the Romans, against Urban, and persuaded Alberico de Barbiano to march and achieve victory against Clement's army, her frantic efforts were for the most part unsuccessful. In the last year of her life, and with her health failing rapidly, she realized the uselessness of her task, despite her sincere efforts, and instead offered herself as a sacrificial victim for the sake of her beloved church. This outlook had been building up in Catherine's mind for some time, as V.D. Scudder explains. From the days of her stigmatization, Catherine had been convinced that, in some special sense, she was to share in the passion of Christ and offer herself a sacrifice for the sins of Holy Church. Now this conception deepened till it became all-absorbing. In full consciousness of failing vital powers, in expectation of her approaching death, she offered her sufferings of mind and body as an expiation for the sins around her. By word of mouth and by letters of heartbroken intensity, she summoned all dear to her to join in this holy offering. 
Here, in her own words, Catherine expresses her deep compassion and feeling for the Church and her willingness to suffer for her. I pray the divine goodness soon to let me see the redemption of his people. When it is the hour of terse, I rise from Mass, and you would see a dead woman go to St. Peter's, and I enter anew to labor in the ship of Holy Church. Now, I do not know what the divine goodness will do with me. As far as my feelings go, I do not say that I perceive his will in this matter, but as to my physical sensations, it seems to me that this time I am to confirm them with a new martyrdom in the sweetness of my soul, that is, for Holy Church. On April 30th, 1380, Catherine dies in the midst of her disciples, expressing both her compassion and mystical utterance. One of her disciples illustrated the scene. Finally, making the sign of the cross, she blessed us all and thus continued in prayer to the end of her life for which she had so longed, saying, Thou, O Lord, callest me, and I come to thee, not through my merits, but through thy mercy alone, which I ask of thee in virtue of thy blood. And many times she called out, Blood, blood. Finally, she said, Father, into thy hands I commend my soul and my spirit. And she gave up the ghost. Catherine's mystic way was mainly concerned with what is commonly known in mystic terminology as the unitive state. This is the third and final stage of mystic attainment in the typical Christian outlook, the first being the way of purgation and the second illumination. The unitive state is basically the stage of union with the Beloved, who in this case is of course Christ. As we have seen in the biography, Catherine expressed this state of divine love, love of course being the unifying element, at every turn. From the power and inspiration derived therefrom, she pursued her active life as a lover of humanity and the church. As Scudder so aptly put it, an age which like our own places peculiar emphasis and value on the type of sanctity which promptly expresses itself through the deed should feel for Catherine Benicasa a special honor. She knows what we today too often forget, that the task is impossible without the vision. But it falls directly upon the vision, and this great medieval mystic is one of the most efficient characters of her or any age. <laughs> 